Um, we're going to hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch would pull away from the old cloth, the old cloth, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No new wine is put into fresh wines. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so we're in Mark chapter 2. We're going through the book of Mark right now. Um, every now and then I like to provide commentary on why we do what we do. And so sometimes we just do a little bit of a review. Um, one of the reasons that we have um, children in church for the first half is because we want them to see examples of what it means to worship. Now, are, are they loud? Yes. Do they cause disturbances? Yes. But here's the deal. There's a time when the children wanted to come to Jesus and his disciples were thinking, don't you know how loud they are, Jesus? Try to keep them away. And Jesus said, no, no. You let the little children come to me. And he took them and he blessed them. And so, though, though it, it might, it, that is really the nature of discipleship. Discipleship is usually messy, yeah? It's usually kind of, kind of uh, has some, some wrinkles in it. And I also want uh, the parents in the room to know that we want you to disciple your kids. And by having them here on Sunday mornings, you have an expectation of what that's like, okay? I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to have a quiet time with your kids, they're not always listening to what you're saying, Right? We're reading the scripture, we're praying, we're teaching them, and we're being patient. And so I just want to give you a, a, a view of why that is there. It's intentional. We want our church to, to integrate children into the life of our church as much as possible. They're not distractions. They are blessings. And we want them to see what it looks like to, to worship God together. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So on to the scripture, Mark chapter 2. Now, here's an interesting thing. Now, I've told y'all a lot of times I'm a nerd. If you're new here, I am. That's one of the things that I do. And I wanted to tell you about this book. If you are a nerd, it's a good book for you to read. It's called Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefine Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. You're like, what in the world is this book about? I'll give you the synopsis. The synopsis of this book is that what's really wrong with the world in popular thinking is that Others, other people are doing bad things. And if people would just leave people along and let, let them be their true selves, then everything will be fixed. So stop telling people what to do. Let them do their own thing. Really, the, the, what, what makes the world so, so frustrating and bad is that you have these influences outside of you that are trying to make you fit this particular mold. And if they would just leave you alone, then everything would be fine. Now, as I say that, some of y'all are like, that don't make no kind of sense at all. Because if society is made up of who? Individuals. So, so if society has an issue, who has a problem? Individuals. 
The one thing is, is to think this way, that to think that the other is the problem, is really one of the issues with our society. No matter which side of the main argument you're on, you're like, well, it's them. They did it. What they, the, the things that they're saying, the ideology they have, the way that they vote, whatever it is, they made it happen. But see, Scripture has a completely different understanding of what the problem of humanity is. It doesn't say that the problem with people is something outside of themselves. It says that the problem with people is something in their own hearts. Now listen, it'll be a lot, it feels a lot more comfortable if I can point to somebody else and say, well, that's your issue. But the way that Jesus describes the condition of humanity is that your foremost problem is not something that is outside of you, but it's something that is inside of you. Now, if something that is inside of you is wrong, that kind of gets to the heart of the problem that Jesus came to fix. I remember when, when uh, John mentioned that I was a missionary, and I was a missionary in a country where uh, they, at the time they had a, a, a one-child law, so, so families could only have one child. What, what, what that meant is that people didn't have siblings, okay? And so when we would start talking about uh, what's wrong with humanity, they would say, they look at me and say, man, little children, they're just so innocent. And I'm like, that's because you ain't lived with one. <laughs> you don't know. If you had a little brother or sister, I don't know if that would come up out your mouth. Right? Uh, you don't have to teach kids to do bad, right? They just do it. It's a natural inclination. See, something is wrong at the core. And people are disconnected from God, who is the source of joy. And what we learn in this scripture today is that Jesus creates new people who long for the presence of God. Jesus creates new people who long for the presence of God. Let's ask for his help. Jesus Christ, would you magnify your word this morning? Would you help us to understand it? Lord God, and would you produce heart change in us? Lord, we love you. Speak to us. Amen. All right, let's get into the text. The first thing that we see is that people can judge others too harshly. In verse 18, it says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not? Now, if you're not familiar with fasting, fasting means uh, uh, withdrawing from food for a period of time to pray. Stop eating to pray. That's what it is. So the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees observed a very strict schedule of fasting. They fasted two times a week every week. And they did this because they wanted to be closer to God. They wanted to improve their society. And the reality is they looked down on Jesus' disciples because they did not seem to observe the strict calendar of fasting that they did. In other words, they're, they're thinking, why are we more spiritual than your disciples, Jesus? Jesus, what kind of, what kind of, what kind of disciple maker, what kind of leader are you when we're more spiritual than, than what y'all are doing? So what are you doing? You, you need to hear this question as an accusation. It's not simply a curious question. Is Jesus, why, what, what you doing? How, you ain't teaching your people right. We need to be careful of judging one another's spiritual lives. It comes off harsh and unkind. You know, what's interesting is, is Jesus knew what his disciples needed. Yeah? Jesus knows exactly what his disciples needed. He didn't need anybody else to come and tell him what they need or the practices that they need to do. The reality is when we judge people's spiritual lives too harshly, we often don't understand where they're coming from. 
What I mean is this. When we start our walk with the Lord, the reality is we're starting at different places. Depending on your family, your background, some of y'all have more exposure to the scripture. Some of y'all have less trauma and heartache. So when you start walking with God, your starting place is not the same as everybody else. And so when you judge too harshly, you're, you're not understanding that particular fact. The reality is maybe the Pharisees' disciples, they were trained from a young age to be religious leaders. But if y'all remember where Jesus got his disciples, he got them from the people who was fishing, the uneducated people. We talked about the last time how one of them was a traitor to society. He's like, listen, listen, I got my people. You, you, you don't know where they came from. You don't know where they started. And guess what? Jesus is so patient with us. We're often more impatient with us than Jesus is. You're looking at your life going, why can't I change fast enough? And Jesus is like, I understand where you came from. I understand what has happened in your life. I understand all the things that they don't know about you. And I am patient with the progress of your growth. That means that we have to be patient with the progress of people's growth. We let God judge the pace of other sanctification. Let God judge the pace of people's growth. What would have been better for these disciples of John the Baptist if they were, if they were to pursue the virtue of humility? We pursue humility when we realize that, that, that we have a judge and we are not perfect ourselves. And a lot of times we'll look at our particular sin struggles and we'll think, well, at least they're not as bad as whomever. At least I can hide them better than that other person. But in, in James, the brother of Jesus, he says this in James 2, 10 through 11, he says, for whoever keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. In other words, maybe your sin looks different than other people, but you need to make sure that your nose isn't in the air because you have your own stuff. In other words, we have to leave the final judgment to God. Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, he says so don't judge anything prematurely. Then he tells when, when it is. Before the Lord comes. When, when do we see things clearly? When the Lord comes. When he comes, he will bring both to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. And then praise will come to each one from God. Understand that, that our judgments have to be gracious because our judgments are not always perfect. But we can trust that there will be a judgment that is perfect, that will see everything and judge it rightly. So Jesus is, is addressing these disciples of John the Baptist who are feeling kind of, they're feeling real spiritual. You know, they're like, and y'all need to be more spiritual because we spiritual. And then he talks, talk, starts talking about this particular practice. Now, maybe he talk a little bit about what is fasting. Now, now I, I feel like in our current Christian culture, we don't talk about fasting that much. We don't talk about going without food for the, the purpose of seeking the Lord. But in their day, it was common. And my hope in the sermon is that it would be common for us. But listen, fasting, the reason someone fasts is they fast for the presence of God in their life and the presence of God in their situation. Let's see what Jesus says in verse 19. Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them. Can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast on that day. 
So, so what is he saying? What is he saying? The reason that they are not fasting is because Jesus is in the flesh with them right now. Jesus is the groom, and they have a lot of joy. That, that kind of points to the reasons to fast. See, fasting in the scripture is a sign of lament, of sadness, and of mourning. When, 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 they felt, when people felt like they were in a situation, they're like, man, I'm going to get swallowed up in this situation. They would fast, say, God, please, we need your presence here. Or maybe they got, they got caught up in some real public sin, and they, they wanted to express to God that they felt sad, and they, that they wanted to repent. They would fast, say, God, would you forgive me? Perhaps they wanted something really, really bad from the Lord, and they would fast as a way to strengthen their prayers. But there's no need to fast when Jesus is in the flesh. You're fasting for, for joy and happiness. Jesus, the source of all joy, is with you. If, you, if you're like, man, will, will, will God forgive me? Has he seen my sin? What, what's he think of you? Then you got Jesus who is full of grace right with you, assuring you of the forgiveness of sins. Or if you're like, man, I really need something. And, but if Jesus is in the flesh right with you, I think you'll think you, that uh, this is going to be taken care of. There's one point in the scriptures where Peter had to go pay taxes, and he ain't had no money. And he said, Jesus, they're trying to get us to pay some taxes. What are we going to do? Jesus said, go fishing. And they got a fish, and inside the fish's mouth was money to go pay the taxes. Listen, if you're with Jesus in the flesh, you're not really worried about what you're going to do. But here's the deal. Jesus is preparing his disciples. There's going to be a day when I'm not with you in the flesh. There's going to be, be a day where you experience this deep need for me, this deep need for my nearness. And I'm going to tell you what you ought to do when you feel that. When you are saying, God, please draw near to me. He's like, I'm going to instruct you on what you ought to do. Now, before we get into some of the nitty gritty of fasting, we need to notice something here that we could pass over real quick. Now, Jesus claims this identity in this particular passage. He says that he is the groom. Now, that might not mean a lot to you, but that has a lot of, of weight from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the one who was the groom was God. When he looked at his people, he saw himself as a groom and his people as a bride. Why? Why? Because he's saying, I'm keeping a commitment with you that I will not break. I have made a promise to be your God. I will not back up on it. I am going to be with you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to defend you. I'm going to provide for you. And what Jesus is saying by claiming the identity of groom, he's saying the God who says that I am the groom that will never leave you, I am him. It's me. And even the Bible confirms this. The New Testament speaks of Christ Jesus as a groom. In Ephesians 5, when, when he says, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That Christ gave himself for the church, that Christ provides for the church, that Christ protects the church. This is the commitment that Jesus has for you. And Jesus doesn't make promises like we make promises. We make promises with the best intentions of keeping them, but we don't always have the power to keep them. Jesus made promises, and he has all the power in the universe. So when he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. When he says he's going to provide for you, he's going to provide. When he says he's going to protect, he's going to protect. If this person, if this one is not near you, would you not feel a little sad? The one who's going to protect you, the one who's going to be near you. Listen, listen, have you ever felt that God is distant? Is that just me? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt like, like I was reading the psalm this morning and David said, I, I, could, could, you, could you come near to me? 
I feel like I'm, I'm being swallowed up by life. Would you draw near to me? Listen, we fast and we pray for the presence of the groom now. If the spirit of Christ is near, our troubles and problems would be healed and cared for by him. How about this? Have you ever been grieving and somebody who's a, who's a good friend comes to you and joins you in that grief, and even though it doesn't change the, the bad thing that happened to you, you still feel better? So you got the one who was the eternal comforter. You might be going through something that's horrible, but if the eternal comforter comes near you, it's going to be okay. If you feel like you're bearing something that you cannot not, not, not lift up because your strength is not there, the one who has all power, if he's near, that help you. Listen, listen, all of the answers to the questions and the problems of our life would be solved with the nearness of God. Listen, some of you might be struggling with sin, struggling with with holiness. Listen, if the presence of God is with you and you feel his love and his grace, that makes sin taste a lot less enticing. Or often I think about our community, and I want, I want there to be change. I want people to come to Christ. I want there to be restoration in families. Listen, if the presence of God is near, don't you think he'll fix some of that? I don't know about you, but there's some things that I, that I have a deep longing for and that I cannot do by myself. But if I say, God, if you would come near, I know that you could solve every single problem, that you could reconcile every difference, that you could bring to life everything that is dead. Lord, I want you near. That is what fasting is about. When we say, God, I, I want your nearness, and I'm willing to with, with, with go or, or step away from something that's good, if I can just have you. Now, Jesus is teaching about spiritual uh, disciplines. He's teaching about, teaching about spiritual formation. But there's, there's this little, little thing we need to, need to press pause on. In verses 21 and 22, we see that we need to be made new before we practice spiritual disciplines. Verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst from the skin, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No new wine is put into fresh wineskins. Now, I don't know about y'all. Y'all ever had some wineskins? Y'all know what that is? Okay, so y'all reading this parrot, like, what is he talking about? So I got a different one for you. Okay, just to make it, make, make it, make it plain. Let's say if you got, you got a mirror that's broken, and you say you want to repair by putting some tape on it. Is that a good idea? No, no. So nobody puts tape on a mirror that's broken expecting it to be fixed. That's, that's a modern-day example. See, listen, Jesus came to help people spiritually connect with God. And you would think that the way he would do this is by giving new skills. Let me teach you some practices. Let me teach you some things that will fix you. But what he's getting at and what we talked about from the beginning is that the problem is deeper than just let me give you some new skills. The problem of our heart is deeper than just a quick fix. We cannot add good practices to an old heart. I'll explain this. I remember, so Tom mentioned that, that I've been helping with FCA. I've been helping with FCA for about five years. And so when I got there five years ago, there were some students that were leading it, and I was just kind of observing. I'm like, what are they, what are they going to say today? I was really interested. And so they, they got the, the, the students that are at, in that little Bible study, they got them in a circle, 
and they just started naming sins. Do you lie? Do you cheat? Do you, you know, they just start, do you do this thing? And everybody was like, yeah. And then they looked at them and said, stop it. I was like, I don't know if that's going to work, y'all. Like, like, just stop. If it was that easy, I'd be telling people to stop it all the time. It gets to the, the reason. Like, you and I both know that the problem of sin is such that I can't just go stop it. You'd be like, well, if I could, maybe I would. Right? It points to the fact that, that sin has, has such deep roots in our hearts that we can't just snap out of it. That actually we, we need something to, to dig down deep in our hearts and remove the roots of sin. It's like, it's like when Jesus, when Jesus is, is uh, he, he's, uh, he's at his house at night or at somebody's house and Nicodemus comes to him. And Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee and he's coming at night and he says, Jesus, what, what can I do to have eternal life? What can I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, be born again. Now, you might have heard that, but Nicodemus hadn't heard that before. He's like, wait, 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 time, time. You're telling me I got to go back a bit my mom and come out? I don't understand what's going on. That's what he said. That's what he said. And he's like, I don't understand what's going on. Listen, listen. He's saying that your problem is so deep that I can't just give you a little, a little recommendation, but that you have to be made completely and totally new. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about the problem of sin. He says, he says you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. Now, if you wanted a, a dead person to get back to life, would you just go stand on the, of the course and say, get up? I think you might go to the, to the little psychiatry place. I don't know. Right? You don't just tell dead stuff to be alive. You know that doesn't work like that. There has to be something that is more powerful than you that can make something dead become alive. And this is the doctrine of our salvation, that when you come to Christ, it's not that you accept just a couple of new truths, but that the Holy Spirit reaches down in your heart and makes you a completely new person. That, that is the gift that Jesus gives you. Now listen, sometimes I say theological words and I want you to repeat it. Say regeneration. regeneration. All right, that's the theological word. Listen, listen, an old confession of faith, it describes it as this is out of the state of sin and death in which we are by nature, God transfers us to a, to a state of grace and salvation. He enlightens our minds. He helps us to understand who God is. He takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. A, a heart of flesh is something that I can feel. He renews our wills and he turns us to that which is good. The fact of the matter is, before Jesus saved me, I didn't really want to follow him. And no matter how much you argued me about it, I'd be like, that's cool for you. You do your thing, that's, I'm here, that's nice. But there came a day when Jesus Christ reached down and said, Will, you about to follow me. And he changed me. And the things that I, be I desired from the most core of my being changed. I went from someone who was dead to someone who was alive, to someone who couldn't care less about God, to someone who says, I want to hear about him. And that is the promise for each and every one of you. If you say, you look at yourself, you say, I'm so trapped in sin, sometimes I don't even know if I want to get out. And God is saying, no, if you reach out to me, I'll make you 100% new. In other words, he's saying, listen, we're not about to go to people who are in sin and just say, stop it. 
That's what, like, like that's, that's what Jesus is saying. John, he, like John the Baptist's disciples are like, tell, you, tell them to just change themselves. And Jesus is like, they can't. They can't. That's why I came. I came to not just add new, new, new rhythms. I didn't just come to add new disciplines or add new works. I came to fundamentally change people. And how did he do this change? He referenced it. He says, when the groom is taken away. Why was he taken away? He was taken away because of wicked people. He was put on a cross and he died in our place for our sin. The, 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 The things that were owed to us because of our sin are put on Christ on the cross. And then it says that he didn't just stay dead. He rose from the dead. Here's the craziest thing. And the Bible says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. You're like, well, how do, I, how, do I, how do I know I can be made a new person? Well, if Jesus rose from the dead, he can make your dead heart alive. So he raises from the dead, and then, then he ascends into heaven. He's seated in heaven, and he, he has sent us the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God makes us new people. But the reality is, we long for the day of his return when everything's made right. I don't know, there's some days when I watch the news or I'm listening to the events that are happening and I'm just, I just feel sad. It's like, this is horrible. And at that point, I think, man, when Jesus Christ comes back, when he comes back from heaven, he's going to set all these things right. Yeah, there's a longing for him. So he's taken away from us for a season and a time. But he is going to come back. But in the meantime, right now, before he comes back and we're in the middle of this sin-sick world, what do we do? If you pay attention to what we preach, we were preaching a lot about spiritual disciplines, about spiritual formations. And let me, I want to clarify. We're not saying that spiritual disciplines change your heart. We're saying Jesus changes your heart and he makes you new. But think about your spiritual life as a little baby. That thing got to grow. How do you grow? How do you become mature in Christ? You take the spiritual disciplines that are given to us in scriptures, not to fundamentally change your heart, but to strengthen what has been put there. Do you see what I'm saying? So, so, so we want to, how are we going to work out? How do we make the, our, our baby spirituality into something that is, that is mature? We grow in these practices of, of attending the scripture, of praying, of coming together to worship. And even we fast. Now I'm going to break down fasting because I'm quite sure that's not something that you've heard preached about a lot. Fasting, it means going without food in order to pray and connect with God. So the first question I ask you is, why would we fast? Number one, Jesus expects us to. In Matthew 6, 16, he's given instructions about fasting. And he says, when you fast, do this. He didn't say if. He said when. When is an expectation that you would fast. Number two, his early followers fasted regularly. One of the first documents that is, that is post-scripture that's, that's written by the church is this, this document called the Didache. It means the teaching. And what they wrote about was that, hey, if you're a Christian, you fast twice a week. They was hardcore, right? And then in times of spiritual renewal, 
the discipline of fasting is revived. One of the, 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 the great preachers uh, uh, of, the, of the 18th century, John Wesley, who started the, the Methodist renewal and, and it reached to America and across the ocean into England, he said, I will not ordain a man unless he fasts twice a week. He himself fasted weekly. Now, why? Why are these people fasting? Why are they saying, I'm going to go without food and, and, and dedicate time to pray? We fast because we are longing for the presence of God. Now, we talked about, man, if the groom is near, if Jesus is near, if the spirit of Christ is near, there's some good stuff that's going to happen. But we don't always feel that, do we? But if we're saying, God, I want you to draw near to me. He has given us a mechanism, a method to do that. I read a book about fasting by this, this preacher named John Piper, and, and the title was A Hunger for God. Saying, just like I want them ribs today that I'm not going to eat, I want you more than those ribs. Now, let's get into the nuts and bolts. I'll never want to tell you to do something, not tell you how to do it. You say, hey, I ain't never fasted. I want to try that. What, what do I do? Well, don't start a whole week or something, you know. <laughs> Pace yourself. <laughs> Maybe you fast a meal. And, and instead of spending that time eating, you would take the scriptures and you would put on some worship music and you would seek the Lord. Here's, a, here's the promise we have. Jesus said, all those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. If you hunger for me, I'm going to give it to you. I ain't going to be like, ah. So what, you, could, you could say, hey, man, I, I'm going to fast lunch. And I, listen, I used to do this when I, had a, when I had a regular job. Sometimes I would fast lunch, and then I, I'm like, I have this 30 minutes, hour, depending on the job. I'm going to open the scriptures, and I'm going to seek the Lord. Or how about this? If, if, if you want to really try, why don't, you, why don't you seek to fast a day? Now, listen, I'm going to tell you how I did this wrong. When I first started fasting in high school, what I would do is I would wait to midnight, okay? And this is dumb, but I'm telling you so you don't do this. I wait to midnight, okay? And then the next day, about 11.30, I got some eggs on the stove. Just like, like I'm hungry. <laughs> it messed my whole sleep schedule up. I'm just being honest. Can we keep it real? God, no. Okay, listen, listen. But here's the deal. What, what I learned is when the early Christians would fast, what they would do is they would fast from, from, from night to night. So you would eat, you would eat dinner, and then you wouldn't eat until the next dinner. It makes a lot more sense that way. It does. Thank you. So the practice that I do right now, right now is, is, is I, I practice fasting once a week, and I, and I do that practice. And I, I want to invite you to do it. Why? Why? Because we need the nearness of God. You know, every year we celebrate Lent together, and one of the things we encourage you to do is fast. Because we're saying as a community, we need the nearness of God. I'm going to land the plan, y'all. I want, I want you to leave it with two things. One, if you look at yourself and you're looking at your life, you're saying, I don't know if I quite desire God. I don't know if I quite even want to give up my sin. You need a new heart. And guess what? If you ask Jesus for that new heart, he's, he's going to give it to you. And suppose you have been converted. Suppose you do walk with the Lord, but you're like, I want him even more. Then my encouragement to you is to adopt the practice of regular fasting. 
Who knows what the Lord would do with a church that fasts regularly? Who, who, I, I can't, who knows what he would do if we collectively said, God, we are hungering for you. We want you. We want you in our lives. We want you in the lives of those in our church. We want you in this community. I believe God will show up in ways that we couldn't even imagine. So Jesus makes us new people with new desires and gives us practices to grow as those new people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that it's so, so interesting as we preach through books of the Bible, the things that come up. Things that, that I might not even necessarily have picked to preach on if it was just up to me. But Lord, we want to submit to everything the scripture says. Whether it's a saying that we like or it's one that, that is hard for us, we want to know everything you have to say to us. So Lord, would you, would you give our hearts a, a softness to receive what you would say? And to know that, that every intention of yours towards us is good. So if you have something to say to us that's even hard, even that is good. Help us to love you. Help us to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen.